1: Welcome to the special live weekend edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett at truthjihad.com as well as kevinbarrett.substack.com. I've been doing this show since 2006, bringing on the most interesting folks I can find to have unusual conversations. I am particularly interested in people who see things a little differently from the way the establishment keeps telling us we're supposed to see them. You can't accuse me of staying in my bubble. Okay, I'm, uh, you know, I, I could sit here all day telling you what my views are. But, okay, religiously I'm a nominal Muslim. I'm interested in mysticism primarily. But also justice on earth to the extent that we can get it. But I don't just sit here and talk to my fellow Muslims or, you know, the ones who think the way I do. Which is actually probably a small minority of Muslims who would agree with me on that many things. And I don't really go out of my way to only talk to people that see things the same way I do on all sorts of other things as well. I like the interfaith dialogue in particular. Yesterday, I had back-to-back, hour-long interviews with Bishop Richard Williamson and Dr. E. Michael Jones, two notable traditionalist Catholics and notorious anti-Semites, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Today I'm going to talk to a couple of Jewish friends, old friends from way back. who have been on the show years ago, and it's time to bring them back and talk about Gaza and things like that. In the second hour, Duvid, who is an independent Hello, Jewish activist, Joel. will be coming on from, I think he's still in Detroit, oh. Michigan. And here in the first hour, I believe we have Joel Simpson. Joel is a well, former college teacher. He's played jazz, piano, He's a professional photographer, and I met him at the Left Forum in New York City where I was getting censored along with some other 9-11 truth types, and Joel wrote a really good article on that crazy experience, and here he is back after years and years. What an interesting time to come back. So, hey, welcome, uh, Joel Simpson. How are you doing, Joel?
0: Thank you very much, Kevin. It's a delight to be on your program once again. Yeah, well, yeah great to have you back. How's everything been? When you ask me how I'm doing, I mean, I watched the news of the war in Gaza on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, and it just depresses me. It is just so horrible and demoralizing and so many needless deaths. Um, Over 9,200 Palestinians now, about 40% of those children. In any case, and of course, the... um, The Hamas raid on October 7th was also uh, outrageous and obscene, horrible. But we can also step back and look at it. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's what I'm going to talk about today.
1: Okay. And you see, I I wouldn't characterize the Hamas raid as obscene and horrible, although there might have been some war crimes committed or some atrocities committed. In fact, I'm pretty sure there were uh, that would be obscene and horrible. But as an operation, I don't think it was. It was primarily targeting the Israeli military. It succeeded beyond all expectations. They captured several high ranking officers. The purpose of the raid was to put an end to the desecrations of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and to get some prisoners to uh swap for Palestinian prisoners and all of that i well i i I mean in the larger context i see the war for the liberation of palestine as the most obvious just war that's ever been fought in all of human history and so while there may have been some atrocities uh on the 7th of october i don't think that the operation itself was an atrocity at all quite the opposite and indeed Mm -hmm. uh, it seems that the vast majority of uh, Jewish civilians uh, who were killed were killed by the IDF, which came in with its Hannibal doctrine of killing using overwhelming firepower to take out both hostages, prospective hostages and hostage takers. And so if you look at the scenes of this horrific carnage from the 7th, Obviously, all of that was done by the heavy artillery and tank shells and rocket bombs and helicopter gunships and so on of the IDF. Uh, Hamas did not have the armaments to do that kind of damage. And we have all kinds of witness testimonies now of people who were there in the Kibitzas that were hit with tank shells and everybody was just killed. Um, so, yeah, it was an atrocity, but 90 percent plus of the atrocities, maybe 99 percent, were committed by the Israeli side, and the operation itself was utterly defensible and part of the most just war that's ever been fought in human history.
0: Well, I can't disagree with you about the justice of the war. Um, I don't – I'm not privy to the information that you seem to have about uh, Israeli fire because, you know, what we heard was that the Israeli army – it was very slow to react, and it was up on the West Bank and didn't come in for 10, 10 hours. That's true, but um, when they got there, boom, they just any,
1: unleashed. <laughs> yeah.
0: But anyway, I know all those people at the at the rave who were killed, over 200 with the the um, Hamas fighters coming in by air. Um, there were a lot of civilians killed by Hamas, a lot. But in any case, um, I don't want to get into evaluating the justice of this uh, of this attack, but it's historical effect because um, I think we have to use dialectics here where the same event can have two different meanings, two contradictory meanings from different perspectives. Um, and for that, I wanted to bring in the comparison, not with 9-11, but with the Easter uprising in Dublin of 1916. And you're familiar with that. I'm sure.
1: Uh, yeah. I haven't studied it closely, but I, I know. Kind well, of you know, you can look papers. it up
0: on, on, on Wikipedia and get some immediate information. It took place on Easter, Easter Monday, Easter Monday morning. and lasted for seven days until Saturday when it was finally put down by the British forces. Um, it took the, the, uh, the British, um, Colonial government completely by surprise. They were, of course, engaged in the First World War, and they brought in their big guns and um, uh, and finally prevailed. But in in the process, four hundred eighty five people were killed. Um, let me see the, the statistics here. Uh, and um, yeah, many. Many civilians, 200 civilians were killed. Um, 66 of the insurrectionists were killed, and then 15 were later executed in May. The British lost 143. In any case, it was it was for those times it was a bloodbath. Nothing compared to what we've seen in Israel and uh, Gaza. But in any case, um, at first it was very unpopular. Uh, people were shocked, but after the leaders were executed in may, remember this took place in April, so they were executed very quickly, and they were very respected uh poets, writers, academics um, and then the the uh, uh, popular opinion turned in favor of the uprising and it it unleashed um the armed resistance to Britain, which lasted in a, in a kind of a low-level war until I believe around 1923, the Irish Revolutionary Period. Um, but Ireland didn't get its full independence. It got partial independence with the Irish Free State. It didn't get its full independence for 23 years until um, 1949, which is very interesting. In other words, these people decided to resist the British by force of arms violently, in a surprise attack and they knew that they would not survive this but they felt so frustrated and stifled that they felt they had to do it and in fact it bore fruit 23 years after the event mm-hmm. so that's the kind of perspective we're invited to consider for something like the hamas october 7th uh, action
1: yeah, I think that's a really oh. interesting comparison, Peter. Um, that, uh, Joel, now, Joel, sorry, my my friend Peter Simpson is a, another uh,
0: Simpson from New York. the great the great poet William Butler Yeats, of course, was observing this very carefully and lived through it. And uh, he was he was not a Catholic, by the way, and it was largely the Catholic resistance, but he still, of course, empathized with with the oppression of the Irish. And he wrote a poem that's that very year called Easter 1916. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But um, the refrain at the end of several of the stanzas is called, is a terrible beauty is born. A terrible beauty is already uh, an oxymoron, a terrible beauty. But it indicates his dialectical thinking. In other words, it was horrible. It killed Four hundred eighty-five people. Um, it created a lot of destruction, but it also asserted Irish, the Irish desire for independence, um, in a way that threw the British off off um, off their game, and eventually they uh, they conceded and gave Ireland its independence. Of course, with holding on to Northern Ireland. But that's another issue. Um so here we are, and to my great surprise, in yesterday's Times, I mentioned this to you earlier, there was an article about the uh, two state solution being considered even in Israeli circles. Um and it's it's dated November first, it's dated Wednesday, but it, I read it yesterday. And you can just find it on on the Times online if you uh if you uh, search for um, two-state solution, the number two-state solution. And the headline is, does a two-state solution, long-discounted, still have a future? And there's a photograph of, of Clinton and Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak in 2000 where they came very close to an agreement, but um, uh, Yasser Arafat didn't want to uh, make any concessions at all. And so they missed that opportunity, and it's only gotten worse. Well, that, that's, that's, that's one way of putting worse. it. but
1: yeah, get Arafat was being asked to do something that very few Palestinians would accept. And, uh, but we, uh, we, yeah. I, I would have to go back and study the details. But back when I did, I discovered that that description that, oh, it was actually pretty, a pretty fair plan, and you know, would, it was just a few minor details that Arafat refused to go along with because he was so stubborn. It turns out that was totally wrong.
0: Well, I remember at the time I sided with Arafat. I I felt that that the Palestinians didn't get enough. That's what I felt at the time. But in retrospect, of course, you know, the wisdom of hindsight, um, a lot of bloodshed would have been avoided. Well, that's true, but the Palestine, uh, the the Palestine,
1: the the Palestine that you would have had, as I recall, was it, it would have all carved up into these non contiguous and barely contiguous kinds of like peninsulas and islands. Uh, yeah, yeah, just Bantu stands. So no, I mean, see, the thing is, Joel, that I think what a lot of people in the West don't understand is that the Palestinians and the, you know, billions of us who support them realize that, you know, the long-term prognosis is that the Palestinians are going to get their country back. So you, you can't just offer, you know, these, you know, Bantu stands on a tiny, tiny fraction of what the Palestinians owned in nineteen forty seven, which was more than ninety percent of the land, uh, or you know, the, the UN plan after that, which was grotesquely unfair, giving the the Zionists 60% of the land, even though 90% of that land was owned by Palestinians. So they were gonna have to be moved off most of their land. And then in nineteen sixty seven, this war of aggression that the Zionists connived at with Johnson uh, to steal even more land. Uh, made the situation even more ridiculous. Now, the yeah. world has said that, that those pre-67 borders are the legal borders. And every square inch of territory that Israel takes, has taken since then is occupied. And all the Palestinians have the right to, uh, uh, to kill settlers. Quote unquote civilians who are living on occupied land are settlers. And arguably every Israeli now is, is a settler because Israel has asserted its right to squat on all of that occupied land. So given all of that and given the fact that with billions of people on the side of the Palestinians and the balance of power shifting away from the U.S., which is owned by Zionists, uh, but the rest of the world isn't so much that Palestine is likely to take, get the whole, the whole thing simply by continuing to fight. So they need, there needs to be a much better offer than what Clinton was
0: bringing to Arafat. Yeah. No, I, I remember, I remember that my feeling at the time was that it wasn't enough. It was um and uh perhaps I've come too much under the influence of the David Brooks article from a couple weeks ago, which talked about the um the loss of that of that chance and i'm I'm reading rashid Khalidi's book on um, the Hundred Years' War against Palestine, which is brilliant and I think very fair um, yeah i would I would disagree with you on several points. I don't think the Israelis are going to simply abandon. Uh, the land that they hold it's not gonna it's not gonna go back to the way way it was before 1948 um but something something fair must must be done so so why couldn't it be like
1: algeria um in other words that the the resistance win wins militarily and the settlers have to go home
0: Well, that's what happened they, they were repatriated into France. Um, because Israel is a, mu- a much uh, a much more dug in institution. But I mean this is these are details of a of a hypothetical which we we're, which we're years away from. I don't right. think. But but, worth- but I, I don't think it's that
1: different. You know, France considered Algeria to be just as much part of the integral territory of France, the hexagon, as Paris. That was the French position, and they were there for hundred and thirty years uh Israel hasn't even been there for eighty years yet, so actually the French were a lot more dug into algeria than than the Zionists are in occupied Palestine
0: yeah, but the French had a had a country and right the Jews but, asserted that this this was their this was their uh country of default after the holocaust a very different um historical situation well yes and no I mean, I, which actually, is why it's
1: not the the French settlers why that, it's not it's not for, the the, 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 the the pied noirs, the, the settlers in Algeria, were actually multinational. They're from all over the place. There were Italians uh-huh. and Greeks and a few, uh-huh. you know, Germans and Northern Europeans. They were from all over the place. They weren't just French, and they went to all sorts of different places. Yeah, they, and, and the Israeli, the the Jews in Israel are, I mean, I, I'm sure many of them would be capable of, stay, of staying there and living in peace with their neighbors after they de, they're decolonized, but probably more of them could than than the pied noirs could stay in Algeria. Yeah. Uh, but, but there are plenty of places where they can go. 20% of today's Israelis hold a foreign passport already and are ready to skedaddle the minute that things get hot. Uh, you know, As soon as that 20% takes off and goes, that's pretty much it for the whole country.
0: That's silly, 80%. But in any case, I don't think it's worth debating the fine points of something that's this far in the future, but I do think it's worth noting, if not celebrating... That in Israeli circles, they're talking about um, resurrecting the, uh, the two-state solution. Um, I'll just read this one paragraph. We cannot return to a pattern where every other year there's a violent confrontation between Israel and Hamas, said Gilead Sher, who helped lead Israel's negotiations with the Palestinians in the late 1990s and 2000s. Um, If America engages in what President Biden has said he would commit to, there's a chance. There's a chance for negotiations that could provide a step-by-step process to two distinct states. So, and then they talk about the obstacles, the settlements uh, by the ultra-nationalists, the Messianic people um, who were violently opposed to statehood and conduct these pogroms against uh, the Arab residents. And they'd have to, they'd have to get new leaders. They'd have to throw out Phoebe and Likud and, and, uh, probably replace the, the Hamas somehow. But anyway, there are lots of, lots of, uh, things to overcome before they get to anything like that. But the, the point to make is that this shocking, unexpected, uh, attack on October 7th has completely shifted the thinking. Uh, and we're not out of the initial suffering phase right now, we're in a terrible suffering phase. And I don't want to make, make light of that at all. Um, and I don't know, I don't see the end of that either. Uh, there's talk in, in the Israeli defense ministry of, of uh, forcing the residents of Gaza into Egypt, whether they're going to live in tents in the desert. Yeah, I mean,
1: well, of course, Egypt isn't going to go along with that. And they've made that very clear. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's right, and that would be a horrible, horrible situation. But anyway, so I've, I've made my points, and I wanted to, st- I wanted to stress the dialectic understanding of this attack—that it could be both shocking and horrible on one hand, and also uh, open a new historical era on the other, which is having trouble being born, shall we say? You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a terrible beauty is born," said said Yates. But this this is not quite born yet. It's just. Were pregnant with it.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting comparison. And one aspect that uh you maybe didn't stress, but I think it makes it an even better comparison is as you said, the Easter uprising was not initially very popular. Uh the you know the violence was was horrendous mm-hmm. and most of mm-hmm. the people were not really on board with it. Uh but it then in retrospect it became seen as uh, something much better, and the, the same thing could happen here. See that the initial reports were so dominated mm-hmm. by Israeli propaganda in the west here here in Morocco, I sat and watched all of this footage, and i didn 't see any Apparent civilian ki- killings whatsoever. I, wa- I watched all kinds of footage taken from the gliders mm-hmm. swooping down, uh, had, mm-hmm. you know, the cap- capturing some hostages and lots of attacks, uh, on and then successful takeovers of Israeli command posts. That's what I was watching mm-hmm. on the Arab media. And I understand that a bunch, of, there are lots of totally false reports of beheaded babies and things like that. Just ridiculous propaganda. Yeah, right. Uh, along yeah. with some cherry-picked uh, cases of uh, Hamas uh, gunmen, or in some cases, I think, non-Hamas people who just streamed out uh, behind them. Because this was a joint operation of all of the resistance groups. And then some of those people mm-hmm. may not be very well organized. So I understand there were some just kind of random killings, too. And uh, in any case, the initial understanding of this in the West uh, not here in the rest of the world, but over where you live in the Occupied West, mm-hmm. uh, was that this was a horrible, bloody terrorist thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the facts may leak out. I'll send you some of the investigators. a really good piece by Max Blumenthal. Uh, about these really? multiple testimonies of the survivors, mm-hmm. uh, who said it was the Israeli military mm-hmm. that killed everybody, not Hamas. Hamas. And these, so these people were captured by Hamas, gunmen, I very well treated, treated with extreme kindness, you know, offered tea, mm-hmm. given, you know, go, go, mm-hmm. go outside if you're too hot in here, we'll stay in here, this kind of stuff. Uh, as, and, and then, you know, so, so that kind of testimony, I think, which we all know in this part of the world, but as it slowly filters into the West, you might mm-hmm. get a reframing of the initial understanding of this as a horrible terrorist atrocity, and that actually could shift things in a way that would actually make some of these changes you're talking about possible.
0: Wow! All right, well, please send it. I'd be interested in seeing it.
1: Yeah, I've been putting out an awful lot of material about it over the past three weeks, and it's really frustrating to be to see how you know, they, like it. You know, a woman gives the interview on Israeli radio and talks about how, you know, everybody around her, the hostage takers as well as the hostages who were very well treated, that everybody else was killed by the Israeli tanks that came in and just blew away building after building full of people on this kibbutz, <laughs> you know. And she, this is, you know, she interviewed on Israeli radio, and they tried to scrub it, but – I think it was Electronic Inifada got that. And now Max Blumenthal has come up with many, many more corroborating testimonies. So it, it does look like a combination of crossfire, which was mostly Israeli fire because they had the heavy firepower. So like at the music festival, most of the people were killed by crossfire, which is mostly Israeli fire. And so a lot of this was unintentional, of course. Now, uh, helicopter gunships would go out and loaded, completely loaded with ammo. They don't want to come back with their mm. ammo. But they can't really tell who's who on the ground. And Hamas and the other resistance groups literally, uh, set, you know, made themselves difficult to distinguish from Israelis. And so they just would just mow people down. Uh, and it turned out they were Israelis. So anyway, that that information, I think, as it comes out and, and say, Hassan Nasrallah just really highlighted that in the speech that he just made uh, like an hour ago. And the mm. Times of Israel headline was that, you know, Nasrallah accuses IDF of killing Israeli civilians on October 7th. Uh, so. And uh, where I, was that headline? Uh, in the Times of Israel. It's published just an hour wow. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so this, this Thank is, you very much.
0: Eh? Yeah,
1: yeah. This is the kind of thing that really, I, see, I think as long as the West has this idea that the people who are mainly targeting the military, which is, you know, Hamas in this case, was, this operation was primarily targeting Israeli military, but it was misperceived and miscast in the Western media as some kind of terrorist attack on civilians. And these people are brutal and nonhuman, and all this sort of thing. And when that, if that perception can be reversed, you know, then we might actually get somewhere here. Because I really think, Joel, that's that's been the problem in over the years. Is you know, it has been a, a uh, the, the The way the story has been told in the Western media has been so excruciatingly one-sided that it's really poisoned the possibility of coming to any kind of reasonable compromise. It's like when you know the people who study psychopaths, uh, say like Robert Hare in Snakes and Suits and so on, and, and Martha Stout, they say that you know, the psychopath lies so outrageously. That you, you go to court against a psychopath, and the psychopath just makes up these right. extreme, outrageous lies. And then, you know, you tell – your, your story might be – you might spin a little bit, but you're still within hailing distance of the truth. And what mm-hmm. happens too often is the judge splits the difference. And that right. means that the psychopath walks off with a lot more than they should. And in this case, the Palestinians, who know as do the billions of other people here <laughs> on the planet – Uh, what the reality is, and they see, they're not gonna split the difference between the psychopathic lie that the Zionists have pushed the West to accept by way of their control of the media, and, uh, and the truth that the Palestinians are telling. No, we have to, we have to have both sides start recognizing, you know, get, getting closer to the truth, and then we can come up with a reasonable compromise.
0: Well, that's very interesting, and I really appreciate uh, that perspective.
1: Yeah, well I, I appreciate yours too. Now, now for, for the two state solution though, how are we gonna do that when there are a, you know the half of five hundred thousand plus I don't know maybe it's up to close closer to six or seven hundred thousand settlers re- really dug in who would have to leave. I mean how how do you what do you do about that?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh they tried that a few years ago and uh, met with a lot of resistance. But um another government would have to come in one who's not dependent on the settlers' political support, um, as the coup is. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, I think the point has been made that we can't go on the way we're going. And the settlers are a main obstacle. Right. Interesting. Well, and so, another so that's, yeah. that remains to Yeah, go ahead. Uh,
1: well, you know, another problem in terms of the long term shifting towards. You know, what you'd like to see, and I would too, actually, frankly, uh, but, uh, how are we, how do we get there with the, you know, the demographics in Israel are such that the sort of the descendants of the Ashkenazim who founded Israel, and, you know, ironically, mm-hmm. of course, Israel was founded by atheists, uh, yet on a sort of a biblical mm-hmm. mandate, which I never quite figured out how that worked, but, but those people are, are <laughs> yeah they they yeah they're having fewer children they're, you know very few children compared to the kind of more oh, right. yeah the, re- the more religious element and the mm-hmm. more really? sephardic element which supports likud and so you've had this demographic shift towards the people who vote for likud and it gets worse all the time uh as the you know the people who have the big families the children of big families are more likely to have big families themselves and so, what you end up with is oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, so, how 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 can what what can
0: change that situation? Well, real politic. I don't know. I mean, um, it, it it will take a great deal of courage. Um, because right now it's suicidal. Israel is a, Israel is a cursed country, with this population that's so reactionary, so racist. So Trump supporting. Do you know the book, uh, The State of Israel versus the Jews, by Sylvain Sipel? No, I don't. By PEL. Very, very interesting. It talks about how the um, Israeli soldiers are indoctrinated into um, having no uh, humanitarian feeling for Palestinians by being encouraged to go into Palestinian homes in Israel and mess up everything, and then walk right out without making any kind of accusation. Um, you know, they're, 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 uh, they're hum- their fellow feeling is dulled towards Palestinians as human beings. So with those kinds of attitudes um, actively promulgated, and by the way, he also mentions that 77% of the Israeli population supported Trump. So th- this this is these are the fruits of a right wing population. They're going blind into into nowhere. There's no future in this. It's all short term advantage and, and 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 crushing human beings. You can't do that forever.
1: Right, especially so, when, know, when they're I'm, in a region full of people mm-hmm. who support the
0: Palestinians. Yeah, and and the region is larger than that. I mean it's the whole the whole global south. <laughs> yeah, where where um the US is is continues to lose lose stature. No, it's a very a very uh depressing situation. Yeah. And of course our media on are not uh, uh are not that open to uh to other points of view. I mean I watch Amy Goodman and I think oh my god, I'm, Look what's happening. But who else is seeing who, who else is watching democracy now? I mean, even even um, MSNBC is losing viewership. They lost something like 20 percent of their viewership because they, they tried to be fair. Well, wait a so fair. They, they, they fired
1: every single one of their uh, Muslim and Arab uh, anchors and, and who, did? who did uh, MSNBC. You didn't see that article? My yeah,
0: son was on. I saw Nathan son last week. Really? Okay. Well, maybe, maybe they rehired
1: him. I, I don't watch MSNBC, but I saw an article about how they had uh, mm-hmm. fired. Um, let me see. Uh. see. See if I see that pop up. Uh, yeah. MSNBC suspends three Muslim anchors uh, amid the Israeli war in Gaza. Um, so, yeah, they fi- they've suspended three, apparently. So maybe they still have one or two.
0: Suspense.
1: Yeah. Removed, t- removes three top Muslims from anchoring duties is the uh, headline. It was Ayman sure. Mohiaddin, Ali Velshi, and Mehdi Hassan uh, were taken out of. Well, the I anchor saw ship. Mehdi
0: Hassan. I, they weren't. Yeah, he wasn't in an anchor position, but he was in a report in a reporting situation, uh-huh. and he gave a very a uh, uh, very clear eyed um, uh, report of what was going on in Gaza, uh, tragic mm-hmm. report.
1: I see. Okay. Yeah. So this, this new story says these three, uh, Muslim anchors were taken out of mm-hmm. the anchor's chair. Um, mm-hmm. but the, it, it says then, you know, they re- reversed a plan for Moik Yaldin to fill in for another host on Thursday and Friday and, uh, and so on and so forth. So yeah, they're, uh, uh yeah, I think the, the, the American, uh, media is definitely a problem, uh, in, in so many ways. And, you know, you, and this leads to the question of, you know, you, I guess you were uh, a Zionist in your youth uh, before you of studied the issue. So, how you know, of course. yeah. How, and it seems that most uh American Jews, uh, especially the sort of more cognitive elite ones who end up in important mm. positions in the media, tend to be liberal and, for the most part, relatively open-minded, thoughtful people who actually tend to side with underdogs as their overall orientation. But then when you get some kind of shocking threat to Israel, like this October 7th story, mm. it seems that a fair number of those people maybe uh, are suddenly not quite so open-minded uh, what? How, how do we address that problem? The problem that Philip Weiss wrote about in, in his article, you know, do Jews dominate American media? And so what if we do? His answer to, so what if we do was that obviously the American media is grotesquely, you know, pro Israel biased and, you know, sees itself as the last sort of line of defense of, of the Jewish
0: state. Well, first of all, there are a lot of factors here. One of them is the, is the profitability of this war. In fact, um, the The head of Raytheon, who was quoted on democracy now this morning is saying, Oh yeah, our stock has gone up, and there are a lot more orders and it's like, <coughs> this war is, is good for our bottom line um, you know the the uh, what is it three point eight billion dollars that the u s gives to Israel every year for uh, mostly for military uh military expenditures is basically paid to American arms manufacturers. So there's a, there's an economic interest in supporting Israel. And I, I see that behind all of Biden's uh, proclamations.
1: Well, you know, we could make twice as much money by giving that much to Palestine too. Right.
0: <laughs> right. So maybe um, I'll, I'll
1: run for office uh, trying to, I'll take money from military contractors and I'll pledge to send billions of dollars every year for heavy weapons for Hamas. Very funny. Um, why, that, why is that funny? I mean, why, why shouldn't I? Why should the, well, why should the, the United, United States be, send, be sending billions to Hamas and doing everything, you know, exactly the reverse of what it's doing? I mean, why not? They'll, the arms manufacturers will make just as much well, money.
0: Because of, the, because of the voting blocks.
1: Um, but is, is, doesn't that Republic come down to media brainwashing, Joel?
0: Well, sure. I mean, it's a... It's a so, so we're back to system. the Jewish media. So let's get back to that. Well, that was, like, that was no, my question. No, I don't. I don't. Yeah, no, no, no. I don't go along with the Jewish media business. Um, the, the Republicans are, are uh, yeah, um, uh, unwavering supporters of Israel. Okay, fine. The Democrats, it turns out, 50% of Democrats no longer support Israel. This is a major statistic, only something in the 30s, 30, 34, 30, 35 percent support Israel in the way that Biden supports Israel. Biden is taking, you know, the traditional, old, aged, aged persons uh, supported Israel as the as the as the beacon of, of freedom and, and democracy in the Middle East, which, of course, it is not. Neither one Um but, you know, he seems to be rather intractable, asking only for a, a, the, the pause, right? So there's a, yeah, Fox News is not Jewish media, and yet they're totally, totally pro-Israel. Well, Rupert R- R- Murdoch
1: is, is dubiously, there's a, a debate about that. He's, he's certainly close to elements, wealthy elements of the Jewish community worldwide in Australia. Well, sure.
0: Yeah. Well, sure, there are there are wealthy jews who support israel completely um and um uh, wealthy non-jews uh, I, I, I just this, the whole the whole jewish conspiracy thing just rings hollow but, me. But, but, okay just, let me put it another
1: way okay so so philip weiss says that more than half of the key decision makers and owners at the major media outlets where he worked including the york times were jewish mm. he thinks that's because it's a com- you know you're comfortable with your own people and once they're already there they're more likely to hire a new person who happens to be Jewish. It doesn't matter that much except that this leads to the media being massively pro-Israel biased. Uh, and let, let's just imagine that we reverse that somehow. Let's say that that more than fifty percent of the key decision-making posts and ownership of the media were uh, Arab Muslims. And don't you think that we would see a very different media picture and wouldn't suddenly I would ha- I would be able to be running for office, making billions of dollars profits for arms manufacturers by arming Hamas. Uh, that would actually be a reality. So it, it is the fact that our media is dominated by Jews rather than Arab Muslims that puts us on this particular side of this particular conflict, isn't it?
0: Well, as I said, there are many factors. Including the, uh, the voters, including the arms manufacturers, and also you can't anymore identify, uh, uh, a Jewish population with supporters of Israel. Since we have Jewish Voice for Peace and we have Tikkun, these are very, very critical, uh, elements. Um, and in fact, uh, Jews are, 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 are among the leaders uh, uh, screaming about this this terrible war and in opposition to Netanyahu and his, and his terrible oppression. So, and that, that's the, a good point. The, that's a, I the mean, the <laughs> yeah, old yeah. trope, it's an old anti Semitic trope, which I, I really don't go along with. I mean, you, you cited Max Blumenthal. Um, I think the Times has been pretty fair. Uh, but, even, but you don't even uh, know. You don't. Even,
1: you never even heard that the IDF killed the vast majority of Israeli civilians. You never heard any of these reports. Why is that? Because isn't that because of the gatekeepers in the American media, like Philip Weiss says, being Jewish and wanting to make sure that Americans support Israel?
0: Well, as I said, the American support of Israel is not simply attributable to Jewish control of the media. There are many other factors. Now, I, I'd still like to see see the evidence and judge for myself because this is new information for me. Um, but it shouldn't be. And I'm not. Well, maybe not. Yeah, but uh, see, you're but you're,
1: you're reading the mainstream media, which is not
0: reporting this stuff. Which you Well, know, I read other things too, I read Truth Out and I read uh, Daily Coast. Um, but send it, <coughs> send it on. It would be very very interesting to notice to know this if it's true, and of course, the, the media in Algeria or in Morocco may be biased, too. Well, of course. Um, but anyway, I don't want to I don't want to discount it. Let me see it. All right. It's 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 amazing information if it's if it's true. But I refuse to go along with the Jewish control of the media trope, this old anti-Semitic trope. Um, but but it's true. So it's, it's
1: not. It's a, it's, it's a true trope. Fa- the facts there are, so are, are that Jews so are reasons. wildly overrepresented. More than 50% of the key decision-making positions, according to Philip Weiss, who should know.
0: Well, but I don't believe that just because you're Jewish, you're going to support Israel. And that's been proven over and over again. And I'm reading, you know, I'm reading uh, Khalidi, who, of course, is critical of the American media. But, um, and, and there was a certain time when, when, um, uh, the American political establishment went over to the Israeli side um, after, after around 1956. Um, at first, uh, they were not particularly supportive of Israel, but um, uh, they may have leaned toward Israel. Anyway, it, it, I, I don't want to get into this debate. Um, I, want to, I want to try to figure out a way out of this uh, terrible Uh, This this terrible killing war, this this disproportionate uh, response on on the part of the Israelis who who have no sense of of humanity, and um, it's turning the rest of the world against the United States and, of course, Israel.
1: That's absolutely right. And and I do agree with you, Joel, about but, uh, one thing one thing you said, which which is that obviously being Jewish and being Zionist are not the same thing. And that's actually kind of the point of my radio listing today, because I, mm-hmm. I had a very frustrating debate with a Christian Zionist, uh this Dr. Rich Sweer, mm-hmm. a couple of days ago. And so now mm-hmm. I'm interviewing you and then Duvid in the second hour tonight, and both of you are Jewish mm-hmm. but not Zionist. And so that does mm-hmm. illustrate that you know being Jewish and being Zionist are two totally different things. And frankly, I have better conversations on these things with, with Jews than I do with Christian Zionists. Talking to a Christian Zionist is like talking to a proverbial rock. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in any case, well, so that, I mean,
0: yeah, yeah, we've been we've been involved in this issue for a long time. We've 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 uh, changed our opinions obviously in the course of our lifetime. Um, I try to read. Uh, uh, from all sources, I mean, I've, have you read Elan Papay's book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine? Yes, that's a that's a very good, terrible, one. yeah, yeah, uh, really shocking. And this other book that I mentioned, The State of Israel Versus the Jews, is also very good. And Khalidi's book, The Hundred Years uh, Year Old Hundred Year War Against Palestine, is wonderful. He's very fair. Uh, he talks about um, uh, the the. The the Jewish drive for for a state from Theodore Herzl to Heinrich Weizmann, uh, the terrible anti-Semitism in Europe in the 19th century and early 20th century, um, and and then the the role of the British in talking out of both sides of their mouth, promising things to the Jews and promising things to the Arabs, and then not not delivering to the Arabs, and then uh, incurring the wrath of the Jews who, who chased them out with their own terrorism. Um, and then the establishment of the state of Israel, during which time the Palestinians who were in the clear majority, overwhelming majority, had virtually no political organization. And the Jews did. And it was, it was quite a, quite a feat that the Jews managed to establish the state of Israel. And then of course they went into ethnic cleansing, which is a terrible war crime and got, and uh, forced 750,000 people to. To leave their homes. Um, this is the original sin at the base of, of Israel, and it's something that has finally reached the mainstream media in this country. And right. It's finally referred to. It's finally referred to openly in the mainstream media. And, and right right at the moment when
1: says, there's a possible even another necklace.
0: Yeah, right. No, but I mean, in the last year, uh, I've, I've seen multiple references to this. And I mean, I read the Pape book several years ago before any of this uh, was in the public consciousness. And now it's referred to whether, you know, whether um, uh, people in, in, in middle America or, you know, who, who barely follow the news are aware of it or not uh, is another is another issue. But uh, things are changing. Things are shifting. And the, the savagery of the Israeli uh, bombardment and killing of masses of Palestinians in Gaza and the for, possible forced uh, forced removal is, is, is shifting American opinion, which is far ahead of political opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think it's shifting it fast enough, and, and it's not pervasive enough, and it's causing a great deal of, of conflict in this country and you know, violent incidents against Jews and Muslims, uh, it's really stirring things up in a, in a very negative way, but um, th- things have changed. Things have shifted. All of these shifts are contributing to um, a reconsideration of the whole problem, and it's all of a sudden become the central problem in the world. I mean, Ukraine has has has, uh, has retreated to uh, to a background subject, although it's an extremely important uh, issue. Uh, China and Taiwan, uh, there are all these flashpoints around the world right now, but um, the israel Gaza war is sucking up the the air anyway
1: and how, how about the relationship between these different Whoa. flashpoints because the one thing we haven 't really talked about so far is how this situation in Palestine is increasing the the tension and polarization. Between that portion of the world that's occupied by the American empire and then the rest mm-hmm. of the world. And that seems to me to be kind of the, the real uh, key thing in terms of what's really uh, the, the historical changes, the context in which whatever happens in Palestine mm-hmm. is going to have to fit into. Is this shift in, in the world? Like every time that, you know, rising, some rising powers and some declining powers have reached this point where the way the world is set up, the institutions no longer match the actual power structure of the world, there has to be sort of a reset. And usually that happens through war, including a world war. And right now the American Empire, which dominated the world after World War II, is not even close to having that kind of domination of the world. The Western share of GDP is declining. It was something like three quarters of the world's GDP uh, after World War II, and it's heading down towards you know 20% and, and south of that. Uh, so that radical change in, in the distribution of power in the world – uh, means that the the U.S. empire still thinks that it runs the world and there are all these institutions that were drawn up for the victors of World War II, namely the U.S., really, to run the world. Uh, those are no longer appropriate. And so there's going to be a reset, and these wars are part of a sort of a, a slow boil World War III that's the reset that will lead to a new, a, a new state of the world and new institutions that will no longer be dominated by the U.S., which, of course, will then no longer be in a position to prop up Israel, and so I'm, I'm you know, wondering uh, what are your thoughts on that? And do you agree with me that you and I both have a reasonable chance of living long enough to see a radically different world that's no longer dominated by the United States?
0: I think that's an excellent point, because um, I've been thinking for years, and many people have, about the decline of the American empire. Uh, empires rise and they decline, <clears throat> and they inevitably decline. And... Um, um, Kevin, uh, Kevin Phillips has wonderful books about this um, uh, he, he's observed the rise and fall of the Spanish the, the Dutch and the English and the British Empire and now the American Empire and they all decline um, for similar reasons um, overreach, arrogance um, over, uh, massive debt and then And they can't sustain their their um, uh, their initial push their initial power and so that seems to be happening to the United States right now uh I think this this war is uh, uh encapsulates american decline and in fact it 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 throws a spotlight on it uh in, uh, because when you look at America in contrast to the global South and and um, what used to be called the Third World, you see that we we've, we've lost enormous amounts of ground despite our 800 and some bases around the world. I mean, we're way overextended. So, but I don't know what a what a a, a post-American domin- dominance world would look like, and I certainly hope there is no world war unless uh, it 's going to be a cyber war and taking place on computers without people dying
1: yeah, well, we, oh, we no. should we should note that this this, this uh, Alexa flood and then this uh, Israeli genocidal bombing campaign that followed it are have shifted pushed the entire Muslim world you know out of the u s imperial orbit right now the the right. absolute disgust with the u s <laughs> here in Morocco and everywhere else in the Muslim world. Is just off yeah. the charts. And so Saudi Arabia with is no Saudi longer on board for normalization, uh, no longer really interested in sticking with the U.S. and doing that, uh, that new Middle East plan that Netanyahu and the Americans were using to go against the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, that, that whole plan for keeping the U.S. empire propped up in, in the Islamic world and, and especially the Muslim Eastern Middle East, that's, that's all dead in the water now because
0: of this. Absolutely, and again it, it was it was Hamas's my, my friends are going to hate it Hamas 's courage to do this to do this uh, uh, attack that that threw everything off balance and exposed the um, uh, uh, the futility and the um, uh, the, the fraudulence uh, the corruption uh, on which American power uh, rests which has been the case since the second world war since the end of the second world war as we overthrew democratic uh governments in iran and guatemala uh later in honduras more recently um creating all kinds of, of upheavals and of course the the um, uh, the immigration crisis in this country is really created by us um uh, anyway so, so these these are all these have been signs of weakness signs of uh, so deep corruption that have been been uh been cascading and you know, starting right in 1953 um and we've and this this uh, this episode is another another confirmation of that I'm afraid
1: Okay, well, I I have no idea where it's all going to go, but I I notice that the world is still here, even though uh, Hassan Nasrallah finished his speech. A lot of people were concerned that we would see a big uh, escalation on the Israel and Lebanon border today, and I haven't been following closely enough to know whether anything like that's going on, but... I don't see any mushroom clouds out my window, so I guess it's a good day. Uh, so, uh, so, Joel, we right. have just a couple of minutes left here. You think that some kind of truth mm-hmm. and reconciliation process might work for Israel-Palestine, where you could get like take some of these Palestinians who did just kind of you know killed unarmed people on October seventh, and then take some of these Israeli mm-hmm. people who were brainwashed in the IDF and ended up doing terrible things to Palestinians, and some of these sh- sh- guys who shoot Palestinian children for sport, for example, mm-hmm. the snipers, uh, and you know wear wear the one shot two kills T-shirts and things like that, and you know take these people who've, you know, had lost their compassion for people on the other side and somehow put them together as some kind of truth and re- reconciliation version of a criminal trial and the purpose not being to punish them but to rehumanize them. I mean, is there, is there any way that something like that could happen on the kind of scale that would be necessary for this?
0: I don't know what, what authority would do it. I mean, we, um, the U.S. and Israel don't, um, don't belong to the uh, – uh, to the International Court of Justice. Um, we refuse to be judged by anybody else, even though we commit war crimes right and left. We're, we're trying to put Julian Assange in jail for 175 years for exposing the crimes of our, of our um, of war in Iraq. Uh, the, the whole idea of not taking responsibility for, for crimes and even for mistakes and trying to prosecute the messengers... It's deep, deep corruption. And where are we going to get where are we going to get a a just forthright authority to to hold some kind of court and determine guilt or innocence uh, 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 in the issues of these uh, uh, extrajudicial killings that are going on so frequently on the West Bank? And of Mm -hmm. course, the bombs. But how,
1: how about China? Right. In in other words, China China has a history of doing re-education. So maybe China, rather than the U.S., should be the broker here. And maybe the Chinese should be the ones rounding up the people who've uh, committed atrocities. And frankly, I I would say that'd be more Israelis than Palestinians, but some of (laughs) each.
0: Yeah, but Kevin, China has a history of total self-interest. They only do what. What profits them compared to who? Wherever they are. If China if has a history of self-interest, what does the
1: U.S. have?
0: Well, that, too, that, too. But I'm saying China is not going to be the arbiter. I mean, you'd have to get someone like Switzerland or Belgium or somebody, you know, um, I'm just I'm just i, I think it's,
1: self, it's entirely self-interest. I, I mean, I think China has a certain history of being open to win-win cooperation and also a certain you know, they, I don't think they really have a horse in the race in this case. And so, I mean, I, I think China could be quite impartial. Of course, they, you know, they, they lean towards the Palestinians, but that's just because the facts lean towards the Palestinians. Uh, and so once the U.S. is out of the picture and that empire has collapsed and maybe the biggest power left on Earth is China, that, I, I think the chances of some fair resolution in Palestine uh, would be greater.
0: Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see China as as accepting a role like that. That's a, it's a huge role. No, unfortunately these things as yeah, they're, <laughs> they're decided on the battlefield.
1: Yeah, you know, they they, great they great probably fight. are.
0: We're we're it back to
1: that. Well, battlefield. Yeah. Well, hopefully the, the battlefield won't spin out of control and peace will come as soon as possible. Thank you so much, oh, Joel awesome. Simpson. Always good talking with you. Good to have you back, and Thank uh, you. I really appreciate your help with their left forum issues back in the day. I hope you have 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 you back on before too long. Okay. Great. Thanks. That's Joel Simpson, back with. Duvid mm-hmm. in the next hour. I'm Kevin Barrett. This is Truth Giad Radio. Kevin Stick mm-hmm. around.